I'm a big believer in networking and I think networking can work for everyone. I mean, I'm not massively extroverted in any way. I'm certainly not a salesperson, but I think by just using my authentic voice and being genuine and being inquisitive and trying to be a good listener, which lots of introverts are really good listeners, and that can really help. I mean, you know, I've managed to make networking work for me. Have you ever wondered how academics or researchers transition into a successful career in medical communications? With academia becoming increasingly challenging for many people, many scientists, PhDs and researchers are considering new careers that allow them to apply their expertise. And maybe you are too. Welcome to episode 87 of Write a Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and today we bring you an exclusive conversation with Vicky Sherwood, a seasoned medical writer with a rich background in academia and medical communications, or medcoms. In this episode, we explore Vicky's unique journey from academia into her thriving career as a medical communicator. Key takeaways include practical steps for academics considering a career shift, insider tips on networking your way into medical writing, the diverse projects you could work on in medcoms, how to navigate pharmaceutical compliance issues, and whether AI will take over this field. Whether you're considering a move into medical writing or are just curious about the diverse opportunities in medical communications, this episode will resonate with your professional aspirations. Don't miss out on Vicky's invaluable insights. Press play now to start your journey and unlock the secrets to a fulfilling career in medcoms. Welcome to Write Medicine, where we explore best practices in creating continuing education content for health professionals. I'm Alex Housen, and I'm on a mission to share expert insights and field perspectives on topics like adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Write Medicine is the premier podcast for CME, CPD professionals like you wherever you are in the content creation process. Join us. Before we jump into today's conversation, don't forget that when you subscribe to Write Medicine, you never have to miss an episode. And when you subscribe to the Write Medicine Insider, you'll get access to additional tips, strategies and resources to level up your approach to content creation. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and sign up for my newsletter via the link in the show notes. Welcome, Vicky. Hi. Hi, Alex. Good to see you. We are on time differences here. We're at the end of Vicky's day and we're at the very beginning of mine. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. So my name is Vicky Sherwood. I am a medical writer by profession and I work in the medical communication space. I'm currently a freelancer, but I've worked for Big Pharma. I've worked for agencies who provide medcom services to pharma industry. And prior to that, I was a career academic. And I also write a blog about medical writing, uh, about 
medcoms and also working in the pharma industry more widely called Biomed Badass. So I'm delighted to join you here today on your podcast, Alex. I will make sure that there's links in the show notes to your to your blog. So tell us a little bit about your journey from academia into medcoms. Mm-hmm. So I guess I came to medcoms quite late, actually, in my career. And if I'd known about it earlier, I might have made the jump a lot sooner. So I was actually a PI. I was a principal investigator when I left academia. I was running a research group on metastatic skin cancer research. So very kind of translational, but still there was a lot of basic molecular biology kind of work we were doing. And I was doing that at the University of Dundee in Scotland. And I was just getting a little bit tired with the academic system in as much as I felt like I'd moved away so much from the lab bench and I was just doing a lot of admin work for the department, some teaching, although I had a research fellowship, so it wasn't you know, too much teaching, fortunately, but there was still a lot. And I was doing an awful lot of grant writing and trying to get money uh, for the group. And so I didn't feel like I was anymore doing kind of the really hardcore kind of science, exciting science stuff. My group were doing that, which was really great and interesting. But for me, I just couldn't see myself doing it for another 20 years. So because my research had a bit of a translational edge and there was also, there was always an idea that, you know, it might translate to potentially some kind of medical product in the future. I was interested in the pharma industry and I was interested in how my skills might be able to be used in the pharma industry. So I hadn't decided to leave academia, but I thought I'd gone on a little research project of my own. And I met loads of people on LinkedIn who were working in biopharma. And I talked to them about their jobs and just tried to get an idea of kind of the different kind of roles and responsibilities that were on offer in the, in the pharma industry outside of maybe just the R&D, which of course, you know, is the obvious thing for most research scientists to move into. And it was just serendipitous that I ended up speaking to somebody who worked in medical communications. And she was telling me what she did, that she wrote articles and publications, and that she wrote PowerPoint presentations for congresses. And she was analyzing like, the latest data that was coming out in phase three trials and, well, not analyzing, but interpreting them and writing them up uh, for publication. And she was also involved in a load of scientific meetings. And I thought, wow, that sounds like all the things that I really enjoy about being a scientist, because I really enjoyed the communication side, I think a little bit more than the research when I looked back at right. what I enjoyed. So I was that PhD student who actually didn't hate writing their thesis. I can't say I loved it, but my colleagues at the time were pulling their hair out. And I was thinking, it's not that bad. I mean, there's aspects of this that I quite enjoy. <laughs> and I enjoyed writing papers and I enjoyed going to congresses and writing the abstracts and putting the PowerPoint presentation together. So if I'd known there was a job around that, that aspect of being a scientist, not just, you know, actually doing the research, I may well have thought about medcoms a lot earlier. So after I'd spoken to this lady, I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to have to explore this more. I spoke to more medical writers doing the job. And eventually, through that kind of networking connection with the medcoms industry, I eventually got introduced to hiring managers, people that would potentially think about me in a, in a medcoms writing role. And I was 
asked to send through my CV. I had an opportunity to do that, was invited to interview. And that's essentially how I got my first break into the medcoms industry was really through networking and learning more about it. And yeah, I have, I have not looked back. I can honestly say, of course, there's, there's aspects of the research that I was really interested and saying goodbye to the research team and everything that was really difficult. And I miss aspects of that, but my career is far better suited to who I am as a person and what I enjoy about being a scientist than my previous research lab bench kind of career was. Can we talk a little bit about, and I didn't realise you were at the University of Dundee. I was at Edinburgh and Aberdeen for a long time. Can we talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned networking, because for writers who are newer to the field, of course, this is still standard advice that, you know, most of us receive at the beginning of of our relationship with medical writing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people shy away from networking because, you know, they see themselves as introverts. They don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you mentor medical writers on? Is that something that you hear people getting angsty about? And how important is networking now in 2023 to landing medcoms positions or even freelance work? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was always that kind of academic who thought, oh, networking was kind of some sleazy (laughs) activity that involved selling yourself or having to oversell yourself and be extroverted and work the room and dress to impress and all these falsities, I guess I had in my head about what networking actually was. And if I look back in hindsight, if I'd been better at connecting with people and making connections with people, my academic career might have been Mm. more, more stellar. I don't know. It's difficult to say, but I when I decided that I was going to leave academia, I had no choice because I literally didn't have anyone in my network really who wasn't an academic. I'd spent so long in academia, my entire network, everybody I hung around with were academics and that's all they knew. So if I was going to you know, think possibly about doing another job, I'd need to connect with people who were doing those other jobs because that's how I was going to find out what the right jobs were for me. And as I explained, that's how I came across medcoms. Otherwise, I would never have known about it as a career path. So for me, networking during that transition was essential. But as I did that networking, what I realized was that it was also incredibly important to grow my career as well going forward. So I was able to enter an industry way better connected than if I'd just applied for a job and gone in because I'd already spoken to lots of medical writers. I already knew kind of the medcoms UK landscape a little bit. You know, I knew who the top players were Mm -hmm. in terms of the agencies. I knew which pharma companies were writing, which contract research organizations had in-house writers as well. So I kind of understood a little bit more about the landscape. And I also had connected with people and spoken to them about it. And that really helped me grow my career as well. So for example, if I wanted to expand my CV and the types of projects I've worked on, I could reach out to people and see what their employers were focusing on. Were they, say, doing different types of projects that might be interesting? And might there be a route in there for me to get some work? And now as I've become a freelancer as well, those connections are incredibly important. In fact, I found all my work as a freelancer organically through word of mouth so far. I think once people know you're trained and once you've got those connections, that tends to be how work comes to you in the large part. I've yet to 
secure work through a recruitment agency, for example. So personally, I'm a big believer in networking and I think networking can work for everyone. I mean, I'm not massively extroverted in any way. I'm certainly not a salesperson, but I think by just using my authentic voice and being genuine and being inquisitive and trying to be a good listener, which lots of introverts are really good listeners, mm-hmm. and that can really help. I mean, you know, I've managed to make networking work for me and it's, you know, enabled me to extend my career. Now, that's not to say you can't find jobs on job boards. You absolutely can. But I think when you're looking at a career transition or you're looking at a change of a career, if you're going against people on a job board who already have experience, you know, those job boards are candidate magnets and you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. If there's other ways you can find jobs, such as through networking and being introduced to the right individuals, you're just increasing your chances and shortening the time it will take you to find something that's suitable. So I think, you know, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Taking yeah. a multi-channeled approach towards a job search is is the best way, in my opinion. Yeah. And you've worked in, both in-house and, and working freelance now. Mm-hmm. So what, what are some of the kind of major differences you see in the type of work that you do? And, well, I guess we'll just start with that. Okay. So the differences between in-house and freelancing as a right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, with everything in life, right, there's, pros and cons to each, right? And there's some things I prefer about being in-house and some things I prefer about being a freelancer. So for me personally, I think the biggest difference is that obviously you're not embedded in a team when you're a freelancer. Whereas when you're in-house, you will be in a writing team and you'll be supported by you know, other people who support those writers as well. So things like an in-house studio team, potentially editors, you know, your manager, and other people that will be supporting you. When you're a freelancer, I mean, it it varies because you can sometimes take contracts where they kind of pull you into the team, but often you'll just be working individually by yourself. So for somebody like me who likes collaboration, that's one of the biggest things I miss as, as being a freelancer. But freelancing also gives you some more flexibility. You know, you're a business owner, you can kind of choose the projects you want to work on, to some degree, the hours you want to work as well, and try and negotiate what works best for you on a particular contract. So, you know, there's that side of it. It's probably you've got more control, say, than you have as an in-house writer. But on the day-to-day work, it's very similar. I think I've pretty much worked on projects, similar projects in-house as I have as a freelancer. But as a freelancer as well, you can, as I said, choose more the contracts you want to do. So for example, freelancing recently, I've had the opportunity to work with a PR company uh, as opposed to a medcoms agency. So I've been able to do a little bit more commercial medical writing, which I haven't been able to do in the past. So you can as well kind of expose yourself to new things and new projects as a freelancer that you may not be able to do in-house if your company only works in, say, a very narrow niche within medical writing. You, You might kind of get funneled into just sticking in that area so yeah I think as I said pros and cons to both I've enjoyed both there are frustrations with both so it it just depends and when you're talking about working on medcoms projects can you talk a little bit about the range of projects that you might be working on you know I guess as a freelancer at any one time Mm -hmm. I mean 
medcoms is a hugely diverse area and it's actually incredibly difficult to define but i like to talk about it as like the development of kind of written audiovisual audiovisual online materials um a variety of those dealing with kind of medicine and healthcare and disseminating that information to different audiences across an entire product's life cycle and that could be a medical device it could be a drug so it's a very very broad area and it can be broadly divided into two main areas i think you've got your standard kind of scientific publication so that's your manuscripts abstracts posters or presentations could be things like white papers maybe patient-centric materials like plain language summaries that type of thing and then you've got kind of health communications which are kind of educational materials i think for the healthcare industry that the biopharma company interested in educating the healthcare industry about so those could be things like anything from like videos and webcasts through to like workshops, symposia, webinars, meetings where the pharma company might be gathering insights from the healthcare community. So it really is hugely broad. And so from a week to week basis, I can find myself working on things like kickoff meetings for a manuscript through to agenda setting for an advisory board through to, as I mentioned before, like PR or some kind of brand development discussions around a website, newsletters, book chapters, even booth materials for congresses. So it can be really, really diverse. I mean, there's no reason to ever get bored in medcoms. I had some really good advice when I first entered the industry from a very senior colleague at an agency. And she said to me, if you ever find yourself stuck or kind of working on the same project, not expanding or growing yourself or growing your CV in this area, there's always something else to work on. There's always another type of project. You might need to go and find it from another employer. You might need to, you know, go and actually push yourself forward and ask for these projects. But there's always something in medcoms that can be different and that you can be learning. And, you know, I've been in this industry for just over seven years now, and I can honestly say, no two weeks have been the same. I have continued to push myself and learn different things. So it is quite an exciting space and it's an ever-changing space as well. So there's new things and new aspects to my job all the time that I'm still trying to learn. And if you, even if you talk to people who've been in the industry for 20 years or so, they'll say similar things, you know, be it a new therapeutic area or, you know, a new type of interaction or engagement that they're working on. Uh, there's always something to push yourself forward and grow. So if you like kind of learning, reading, writing, and, you know, talking about new discoveries in the clinical space, I think, you know, MedCons has a lot to offer. And what about some of the, the challenges? So one challenge that I'm thinking of here, especially for people who are kind of, uh, you know, early career and, and moving into the field are compliance issues. What are some of the ways in which, you know, in your experience, writers can learn about, you know, the compliance uh, frameworks that, you know, set parameters around how they can write about particular topics, what can be said, what can't be said, mm-hmm. that kind of thing? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's probably the, miss, the biggest missing piece from anybody coming from a scientific training background into this area. They'll be missing that compliance understanding. And you get that from basically being 
on the job. So a lot of agencies now will have like a training program. So you'll join and then they'll talk you through a variety of training materials to get you on board as quickly as possible and get you ready to work with clients. And a large portion of that will be around compliance. But I can honestly say in my career, I've learned a lot from senior colleagues who have basically just, you know, as we've discussed things and thought about strategy and how we may best communicate a particular piece of information to the healthcare industry, where a senior colleague has said, well, we better be careful there. We better check if that's something we could say or if we've got to think about whether or not that will be perceived as maybe being promotional for something for a drug that maybe isn't, you know, approved in in that indication. So it's it's always, I mean, you'll hopefully you'll be embedded in a team when you're starting out with senior colleagues who are more experienced and will be able to pick up on these types of things and discuss that with you. And it's just over time, just trying a lot of different projects and seeing, you know, whether or not that will fit within the regulations. And of course, the regulations and the guidelines are changing as well all the time. So it's important to try and keep up with those. Uh, so for example, in the publication space, there's guidelines around how, how we interact with authors, how we deal with authors for manuscripts and for other types of publications like abstracts and posters. And those guidelines were just updated last year. Um, the good publication practice guidelines of 2022. Mm-hmm. So it's important when guidelines are updated like that, that you go away, you go away and you read them and you get the summary information and you understand that you can, you know, now you need to apply these new changes to your practice. So it's just kind of keeping on top of it. And you should, in a good agency or, you know, a good company that's up to date with all this, you should be getting all that training anyway. So you will be trained initially when you, sorry, and then you will pick it up from your senior as you go through. No, that's 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 really helpful advice, and I'll make sure to link to the good practice guidelines in the in the show notes. One of the things that I'm seeing a lot of at the moment, and I wonder if you are too, is that there are a lot of people who are kind of moving into freelance medical writing with backgrounds as academics, clinicians, researchers. You know, very tired, <laughs> very frustrated with those professional contexts and they see medical writing as a great way to continue to you know focus on science focus on clinical care those types of things mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily have the framework of they're looking for freelance work they don't necessarily have the experience and the background of having worked in a medcoms agency or you know in my field working in continuing medical education mm-hmm. in in some in-house capacity. And so they don't have, they don't necessarily have that framework for thinking about the different types of projects that are available or, or the compliance resources that they need to be thinking about Mm -hmm. in order to support their work. So, you know, first of all, are you seeing that kind of shift? And second, what are some of the places where people can get support for for moving into to freelance work and a lot of people would would you know counsel against that but i think we're seeing a lot of that at the moment yeah i've seen a lot of people i would and i've seen people who've been very successful who have done that as well um and seem to have you know long established successful writing careers and yet they have never had an in-house position uh and i'd be intrigued to learn more from them because 
the only thing I can imagine is it must have been a very steep learning curve to begin with because, you know, those two years in an agency that I spent when I first got into the industry were really, you know, provided me foundational understanding of the industry and enabled me to ensure that my writing was compliant and was with regulation, you know, kept within the regulations. Um, and I understood also a little bit about how the pharma companies operate. Um, and, you know, you can't just write an abstract in an afternoon as you can in academia and then submit it to the journal. But it needs to be checked by seven levels, you know, including the lawyers. So right. there's lots of nuances about writing in medcoms that are very different to writing in academia, even though the actual scientific writing, you know, would be very similar. It's like, you know, data interpretation and then uh, working out, you know, what the important scientific messages are and then writing about those in a clear and transparent way. That's the essence of it. And that's what your scientific training will give you. But the whole framework of how it's delivered and how it's done, you would learn that when you move into the industry. It's, it's different. So I take my hat off to people that just step right in. When I've spoken to people, because people do reach out to me through the blog, who are in that position, who are offering writing and maybe haven't had an in-house position, I often find that they're doing a lot of kind of healthcare writing. So maybe like, social media writing, a little bit maybe more on the commercial side of what I would class more commercial medical writing than maybe your kind of standard pubs and med-ed, hardcore medcoms. And I just wonder if that's because without that background and that training, if agencies or pharma companies would be more reluctant to come to you for that kind of writing because you haven't had that training. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm you know, being very broad here, and I'm sure there's examples of people who are writing for medcoms agencies without maybe in-house medcoms agency training. But I have yet to come across those individuals. And I do think that if your target is to work with big pharma companies or agencies whose clients are big pharma companies, I think the best thing you can do is try and go, go and get yourself a little bit of in-house training. And you only need a year or so, I think, before you're really up to speed uh, with what you need to know. If nothing else, you'll know what those guidelines are. You'll know, you know, when the, when the expected updates are. So you can keep yourself up to date with these types of things and get yourself on the right training. Um, I mean, you can also join like AMWA and EMWA. So EMWA in Europe and AMWA in the US. And they often provide updates and training around, you know, maybe ISMAP guidelines and things like that that are changing that you can mm -hmm. sign up to and attend. So that can keep you up to date. But generally, I think it, it would, to attract those high paying clients from pharma and medcoms agencies, it's probably best to go and get yourself a bit of training under your belt in house and also building those connections. Because when you leave to go and freelance, you'll then have built those connections. And as I said, most of my work at least comes organically just through word of mouth through people reaching out to me. So, you know, once you've done a, a couple of years, you'll find that's probably the same for you as well. So I just wonder if people who don't have that training, how easy it is for them to find clients, paying clients as well. Presumably they're managing, as I said, lots of appear to be successful at that. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think this kind of speaks to one of the things that we were talking about before we hit record, which is that very wide definition of what medical writing mm -hmm. is. Because a lot of people who will call themselves medical writers are are working in that healthcare space. Mm -hmm. 
where they're doing perhaps more consumer health writing or I'm not in that space, so I don't actually know much about it. But I do see a lot of activity on on LinkedIn postings from people who are who look like they're probably in that space. Mm. And I can speak to, I mean, I left academia with no no network and no experience of working in in medcoms, but I didn't land in medcoms. I landed in continuing medical education. And I do think that, that that's definitely a field where it's very freelance heavy. Mm-hmm. There are far fewer in-house opportunities than there are in medcoms. And most of the people who can end up here seem to make their own way okay. in one way or another. And it, But it is a steep learning curve, as, as you say. Can we talk a little bit about some of the challenges of working on the promotional side mm-hmm. and the type of content that's required, you know, on the promotional side or, or, or some of the, the problems that you might have encountered in doing that kind of work? Do you mean from a compliance perspective or just generally? Yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm kind of assuming that sometimes promotional work can be a little bit controversial because it takes us back to that question of what, what you can and what you can't say. Yeah, I mean, it's completely different. I know you're based in North America and I'm in Europe. And of course, the rules are very different around advertising drugs between the two continents. We just can't advertise anything here. So, you know, adver- working for like a standard advertising agency, you, you know, you would only be doing kind of US work. But I mean, my background is more in the traditional kind of medcoms around like publication and education rather than promotion. Although as a freelancer, I have taken more promotional contracts more recently around, say, public relations work, uh, writing website content, this type of thing. So I'm getting a bit more up to date with kind of commercial writing. I mean, that said, as a medcoms writer, you can sometimes have clients who are in the commercial arm of the business pharma company and then you really do need to know a little bit about your compliance, about what can and can't be said, you know, around particular drugs and being very careful about what it says if it is a licensed drug on the package insert, you know, which patient populations you can talk about in that context. Because, you know, you can't be saying anything that's off label, you know, openly that's going to be published or released. So, you know, you do you do have to be careful. You do have to know your compliance. That's all I would say. And yeah, I mean, as I said, I've not worked that much in commercial writing myself. I probably seventy five percent of my experience has been more kind of on the educational side, and uh, more kind mm-hmm. of what I would call like hardcore medcoms kind of publications and uh, insight gathering work. Well, let's talk about the education side just a little bit before we we wrap up. What are the main, you know, types of projects that you work on on the education side, and how does that differ from? And we get into some real differences here in the between the US and Europe in terms of accredited medical education. But if you could just talk a little bit about what working on the education side involves, as you know either an in-house or a freelance writer? Mm -hmm. So I think when I'm talking about education in the medcom space, I'm talking more about educating the healthcare community about updates to either existing products or or drugs that are going to come onto the market soon. 
So for that, those types of projects, as I said, they, they can be quite varied. So they can be about disseminating information to the community, or they can be about gathering insights into the pharma company as well about what the healthcare community thinks or about maybe a particular product or what's where there might be gaps for the patients that need, you know, more understanding or more research around or maybe, you know, new compound that's needed to, to help a particular population. So the, the, the kind of the, the health, I would call that health communications and it falls into those two categories. So either disseminating information or kind of gathering insights uh, from the healthcare community. So it's kind of this two-way relationship between kind of learning from each other in a way. So pharma companies will sponsor a lot of things to enable the healthcare community to understand more about their products. So things like, you know, symposia, congresses, online webinars, webcasts, training guides, sometimes just infographics that can be released to try and get the information across more clearly. Workshops are quite a common tool as well. And then kind of those insight gatherings um, meetings that I've worked on more would be kind of the advisory boards where you invite kind of mm. experienced key opinion leaders in a particular area and you will carefully craft the kind of questions you want to ask to try and understand more about that landscape and about that patient population and how the pharma company might be able to help in the future or with their existing uh, products or the pipeline of products that they've got. So again, it's it's quite varied and quite wide. But when I talk about education, I guess that's what I'm kind of talking about, both education for the pharma company itself and education from the pharma company to the healthcare community. No, I think it's an important uh, description because a lot of people who, especially who come from academia and clinical backgrounds, are attracted to that kind of work. Mm. And having that nice division between information for and information from, I think, is really, really helpful. Before we hit record, we were talking about the Medcoms gathering that you were at at Heathrow. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing, just to kind of wrap up, what direction is Medcoms taking? What excites you most? What gives you most pause? 2023, some people would say, has been a little bit of a, an off year. There's been a lot of angst and uncertainty in the in the market. What's your take? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the angst came from the fact that we have seen the pharma companies themselves undergoing a lot of change. Prior to 2023, I was working in-house at a very large pharma company um, and they were contracting areas of their business. Uh, and lots of pharma companies and biotech companies have been doing that this year as well. And that's going to have a knock-on effect to any third-party providers for the industry generally yeah. as they kind of cut back their budgets and rearrange and redirect where money will go and change their strategy going forward. But I do think, you know, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm feeling fairly confident that we're probably over the, the biggest hump of that. So at the beginning of the year, uh, when I left the pharma company, I started freelancing. A lot of freelancers were saying, well, it's really quiet. We're, we're struggling to find work. Be careful about coming into this space. But I think oh, as the year's gone on, traction has slowly gained. And I think as the pharma companies start to, you know, the dust settles and they start to get on top of their strategy, um, in this last quarter, they will be really pushing, 
I think, for, you know, gaining traction back again and reaching out to Medcom's agencies. And just in the past couple of weeks, I've had lots of people reach out to me saying, we've suddenly had this last minute project. Are you free to work on X, Y, and Z? So that gives me good feeling that actually, you know, maybe there is a change going into 2024. Hopefully, uh, we will start to see growth again. And in fact, I was looking this up the other day, the Medcom's industry is expected to grow. And it's expected to grow about 18% year on year until at least 2027. Mm. That's a projected forecast. So that's strong growth. So that must be driven mm. by forecasting to think that the, the pharma industry, you know, is still going to heavily invest in how it communicates to wider stakeholders. So I think it's bright and rosy. Obviously, everybody's talking about AI and how AI may affect the industry going forward. My personal opinion yes. is I do feel it's going to be transformational in the medcom space. I'd love to uh, learn more from you, Alex, about how you feel, how it's going to change continuing med- medical education. I mean, there's, there's still a lot of skepticism from certain stakeholders and people saying that, you know, it'll be slow to be taken up. Regulators won't be on board quickly enough. But I think the impetus of what it can do and how it can speed up and change productivity will push it forward. So from things, you know, such as like content review, things like gap analysis, I work on literature searches. I mean, it can look for patterns that's, that would take teams a long time, large medical writing teams to find. It can do a lot quicker. And so, and even things like language translation, I mean, to, to, to try and get our MedCons content, mm. you know, for local geographies is sometimes been very challenging to get that quickly enough into particular areas globally. And I think, you know, if you've got language tools that are up to the task, pharma companies are going to employ them. So I think there's a lot of areas that we'll see changes happening. And already the pharma industry is taking these tools up. So we've got examples of them using, you know, chatbots, automated responses for MedInfo. So like standard responses that people might be, standard questions mm-hmm. that people might be coming to the pharma company with, they'll have standard responses that then a chatbot can deal with. Um, I mean, that's not quite in the medcom space, but it's, it's a good indication of how the pharma company is going to be quite proactive, I think, at trying to look at these things. And that will have a knock-on effect on the medcoms industry. And it, we were discussing before, it's not without its challenges, right, around, you know, things like accuracy, reliability, loss of creativity, data interpretation, I don't think is there yet. Mm. Privacy is a big one for the pharma industry, whether or not the outputs are going to be biased. And so you still need somebody with an understanding and an eye for this around the therapeutic area to be able to see these problems. But I do think some of the more basic tasks may be taken off our hands. And I don't think that's a bad thing because when I started my MedCom's career, you know, I spent a lot of time QCing data tables and checking numbers mm. uh, and that's very tedious work right <laughs> you know and, and they tend to give it to, to more junior people for that reason but i think you know if if you've got a, a tool that can make you know a table very quickly from data and it's 100 percent accurate all the time that need for checking goes down dramatically because people make mistakes and we model numbers up and machines tend to not do that so i think I think the type of work will change, but this question around job displacement, I think, 
is still up in the air because we're definitely going to need, you know, very highly skilled medcoms writers who can double check any work that's coming out. But also the the industry itself is growing, right? I mean there aren't enough med trained medcoms writers already. So I, I don't see displacing the existing workforce yet but they may have to change their workflow and their processes and there may be some resistance to that change i suspect as with all things but yeah overall i think i'm optimistic is what i should say (laughs) yeah you're sounding pretty optimistic Uh, so good news on growth there some interesting challenges ahead in terms of the nature of work and old tedium probably being replaced with new types of tedious tasks (laughs) Uh, as we move into this new kind of frontier of uh, AI. Vicky Sherwood, freelance medcoms writer, author of the Badass blog. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with listeners of Write Medicine. You're welcome, Alex. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Next week, my guest is Elisa Bonsignor, an associate fellow of the Society for Technical Communication who develops sustainable content strategies for global clients. We'll be exploring the digital imprint implications for writers and others who create and share clinical, educational and scientific content. Until then, connect with me on LinkedIn, grab the Right CME Roadmap, subscribe to the Right Medicine newsletter or consider joining Right CME Pro the professional development membership for medical writers who want to specialize in CME CE content. All the links are in the show notes, or you can find them at the podcast website on www.writemedicine.com. And that's right with W-R-I-T-E. Stay curious and keep learning.